Hi, I'm Chris Mayer, and welcome to what is now episode 31 of the Ancient Art of Modern Warfare, where we're going to talk about accountability measures that are now applied to private military and security companies. The previous podcast discussed the pardon for four former employees of the private security company Blackwater Worldwide, who were convicted for the homicide of 14 Iraqi civilians in September 2007. These deaths demand justice, but applying that justice must follow the rule of law. There were significant questions regarding the applications of the rule of law in convicting these Blackwater personnel. Regardless of whether a pardon was the right thing to do in response to questionable application of justice, and we don't even know if that was the reason for the pardons, the pardons provide an opportunity to look at what has been done since September 2007 to improve accountability under the law for PSCs and other persons accompanying the armed forces in conflict and similar situations. Also, to look at the gaps that still exist and what we can do to close those gaps. I had a discussion about this with Doug Brooks, who's been with me here before. Now, you may notice some breaks in the conversation, and that's because it was a rather free-ranging discussion, and I had to scope it down quite a bit to be able to fit it into a reasonable amount of time. Now, as a reminder, Doug, again, who has been with me here before, was the founder and former president of the International Peace Operations Association, or IPOA. Doug participated as an expert in the opening session of the Swiss Initiative and worked to ensure the support of the industry, which produced an international framework for governments to follow in their use and regulation of private military and security companies, or PMSCs. He was also a key participant in the drafting of the International Code of Conduct for Private Security Service Providers, the drafting committee for the internationally recognized management standards for private security companies, and he's been a regular speaker and commenter on PMSC issues. And Doug, this all started with your academic work on private military companies and private sector peacekeeping services in Africa in the late 1990s. And to remind listeners why Colonel Mayer is speaking on this, so he was the U.S. government's expert on PMSCs from 2004 until his retirement from the Pentagon in 2019. He was U.S. government representative for the Swiss Initiative and the International Code of Conduct. Uh, and he was program manager for the development of the international standards as well as U.S. government regulations covering PSCs. Uh, he still sought out for his advice and comment on PMSCs by the U.S. government and other governments, academia, and the U.N. Working Group on Mercenaries. All right. So how do you bring contractors to accountability? How do you be able to try them for crimes committed overseas during conditions of armed conflict? Well, from the middle of the Civil War until the 1950s, it was generally assumed that contractors accompanying the armed forces could be tried by court-martial. In, uh, in the 1950s, the Supreme Court said, no, that's not correct. That could only apply if it was, in fact, a declared war, not a contingency or other instances of armed conflict where Congress had not declared war. So this left a big gap. And in the year 2000, Congress passed an act called the Military Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act, or MEJA. And this was specifically to be able to cover family members and Department of Defense employees <coughs> accompanying military forces overseas. In 2004, that was expanded to be able to cover contractors and other contractors from other agencies who were working in support of Defense Department operations. Something that the industry supported. 
uh, and I remember lobbying for that law to be expanded. Uh, the companies wanted to have some sort of clear law that they could follow, uh, and media made sense. As I said, it, it was a little bit of a round peg being crammed into a square hole, uh, but it seemed to us like it was the, the best option at the time. Now, about that time, we'll talk about 2007, actually it was just about the time that the Nisor Square happened, Congress finally passed uh, an act allowing the Uniform Code of Military Justice to apply in conditions of contingency operations as well as declared war. But this hadn't come into effect yet at the time of the Blackwater incident. Well, to be clear, from an industry perspective, we were against using military law uh, on civilians, and we were actually... Um, joining uh, a number of human rights organizations that wanted to be very clear that you can't use military law on civilians. Shortly after that, in the National Defense Authorization Act of 2008, Congress required that all U.S. government private security companies follow the orders of U.S. military commanders when they were supporting contingency operations or other significant military operations, and that private security companies operating under State Department authority must use rules for the use of force that are consistent with the rules for the use of force issued by the military. That was uh, really important, Chris, because the security companies were operating under two different rules for use of force. And as you recall, for example, uh, one rule required them to fire warning shots, and the one rule forbid them from firing warning shots before they use lethal force, and it was creating confusion. Okay, so Doug, that's what happened for U.S. laws. What was going on at the international level? So at the, with the Swiss initiative where they put together the, the Montreux document, at the end of that document, the Swiss gathered all the uh, trade associations together, and we decided there's a next step, which is a international code of conduct for private security companies. And uh, I, as I mentioned in the past, IPOA had its own code of conduct, but it was a trade association essentially enforcing its own rules. There needed to be something bigger. And the what became known as the International Code of Conduct for Private Security Providers was what would replace it. So that became basically getting the all these uh, private security companies to talk to the legal experts in the Swiss government and other governments that were involved and hammer out a series of rules, laws, regulations that all these companies would follow. And to take care or to basically, uh, once that was signed, to keep that going or to, to maintain that, we now have the ICOCA, the International Code of Conduct. As you said, it was an initiative of the companies to show that they wanted to make a statement that they were committed to apply the principles of the Montreux document in their operations. Now, what took a long time was the next part, was uh, when you said that we, we built the association. That started right away, like in January 2011, and it was how long until we actually had that, that association? Well, what makes the ICOCA so unique, of course, is that it has three pillars, which is, which is government, NGO, or non-governmental organization, humanitarian organization, and then the industry. And so everything they do basically requires these three pillars, which have very, very different motivations and, and requirements to agree to everything. So it's necessarily going to be a clunky process, but it has been an exceptionally clunky process, although it does seem to be doing much, much better these days. Right. So it was uh, essentially from about January 2011, and then its first meeting was October 2013. And so it's been going on for I guess seven years now. But the code, the code was there, and all, all the companies knew they needed to follow the code, right? I mean, it, and it was nothing again, and this going going back to Africa in the '90s. Basically, everything in there is something that a that a professional company does anyway. 
there were only a few things that were really uh, difficult to ask. I think for for companies that, that do these sorts of operations. So the idea is is that the Code of Conduct Association is supposed to support the responsible provision of security services, but it's not really an accountability mechanism. In other words, there's nothing that the uh, that the ICOCA International Code of Conduct Association can do to punish a company for not abiding by the Code of Conduct, other than kicking them out of the association. Membership is required by uh, the Swiss government for all their PSCs, for the, by the Swedish government for their PSCs, and in some Department of State contracts. It's also where they've been uh, encouraging uh, private companies, extractive companies, oil companies, or whatever, to also require companies to be part of the ICOCA. With this were the development of international quality management standards for private security companies. In the National Defense Authorization Act of 2011, the Defense Department was required to develop what Congress called business and operational standards for private security companies. What we did with that is that we essentially took the Code of Conduct and we took the Montreux document, looked at the things that were applicable to companies from there, and then we integrated that with other relevant standards such as ISO 9001 for quality management, ISO 31000 for risk management, and ISO 26000 for corporate social responsibility. And then we put them all together into a, a unique standard for a unique industry. This again is not really an accountability mechanism except that it's required in Defense Department contracts and it provides an independent assessment of private security company compliance with the obligations and good practices for PMSCs as described in the Montreux document in the International Code of Conduct. And nonconformance can be a cause for adverse contract action, including contract termination or violations of the False Claim Act. The standards were published as an American national standard in 2012 and as an international or ISO standard in 2015. And right now about 200 private security companies across the world are either known to be certified to the standard or are working towards certification. There were other international initiatives ongoing at the time, including the work of the UN Working Group on Mercenaries. Now, this had been reformed from the UN Special Rapporteur on Mercenaries in 2005, and then, as a result of Nisor Square, was given a new charter, a new mandate to look at private military and security companies. Its primary effort was proposing an international convention that would significantly restrict the use of PMSCs. However, this was largely rejected by the countries that actually use private military and security companies in contingency operations. And instead, the UN Human Rights Council is now working on developing an international framework for PMSCs, which we expect to be an updated version of the Montreux document. And Doug, why would the UN need an updated version of the Montreux document? Damned if I know. <laughs> because the UN never accepted the Montreux document and actually rejected it when the Swiss proposed it to the UN General Assembly. You know, we worked with the UN all the time on their operations and providing security and logistics and everything because we, we did all different services. Um, but the UN is a many-headed hydra, and the one that was the UN Working Group on Mercenaries and the Special Rapporteur before that was always pretty useful. Yeah. Well, yeah, so you have the UN uh, Department of Safety and Security, and they have their own rules about using private security companies. 
and they were fine to work with. That was no problem. Yeah. They worked, and before them, DPKO, the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, we worked with them, and they were fine. So, but what still needs to be done? What gaps do we have in moving forward? I think one of the issues, again, is getting down to local laws, because even in Iraq, and I forget what year it was, was it 2010 that all the, the private companies were put under local law? And that was a pretty sudden thing to happen in Iraq, but it actually was not that bad. And in fact, the companies had been working there for a while and had some good lawyer, local lawyers, and so they actually did fine with the working under local laws. But the reality is, I think in the future, we're going to see these companies working more exclusively under local law and making sure that local laws are, I guess, meshed with uh, all these advancements in international law and regulation and so on, I think is really pretty important. That brings up another initiative, again, by the Swiss government, working through the Geneva Center for the Democratic Control of Armed Forces, where they've been reaching out to countries in the developing world to help them develop legislation appropriate for private security companies. And again, something that would bring the good practices of the Montreux document to life. And Doug, you already mentioned uh, CJA. Uh, we have MEJA, but we still have that gap. And we mentioned it in the previous podcast, where if the company is operating in support of another U.S. government agency and not in support of a def Department of Defense operation. So, for example, it could be someplace where it's pretty dangerous out there, but we don't have large military forces out there. Instead, either the local government's in charge or a multinational coalition, not military, is in charge. How do we make sure that those people are covered under the law? It could be something as simple as a company working for USAID uh, in a place where you have a conflict going on uh, and the company commits a problem. It's clearly not working in support of a DOD mission. Um, so how do you hold them accountable? And CJA was the answer to that. And the original, the original CJA was 2008, maybe? And there's a reminder, the CJA is the Civilian Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act. Right. And But the, it was something that the industry strongly supported. And it, it, as I said, media was sort of the square peg round hole. Um, CJA would make much more sense and would essentially be more applicable and would, you know, would cover all U.S. government contractors no right. matter where they're operating. So, so it just the, makes a lot more sense. And we worked with Congressman Price on this, David Price. North Carolina, he was great, but we were never able to get it passed, even though we endorsed it from the industry no. side. And the Defense Department's in support of it, the State Department's in support of it, the industry's in support of it, yet it's have never been able to get through Congress. And it may take some crisis before they actually, you know, take it seriously in Congress. And that's how they normally work. <laughs> but well, uh, well, it's well, a maybe good the, law. Maybe the and, crisis of the uh, pardon of Blackwater will be stimulation. Uh, that's a really interesting thought. Uh, I would love to see it get passed. Yeah. And then finally, uh, while this has been going on, we have had, despite the fact of people claiming that uh, private military and security companies are just mercenaries by another name, we've had a rise of, of organizations that are actually much more like mercenaries, even though they don't quite meet the definition under international law. And those, uh, we're, of course, talking about the, the Wagner Group from Russia. But there's a precedent for them. I always like to bring up the example of Bob Denard, who was a famous mercenary of the 60s and 70s, uh, who essentially worked for France and sponsored several coups. And each time, basically, it turned out the French government was behind it or they had the okay of the French government, except once, I think. 
Uh, and now you have Russia using companies in a similar way. And it's interesting because from a legal accountability perspective, all of a sudden you have governments that don't want accountability for these companies. No, and that's not just Russia. It's the UAE and Yemen. Yeah, Mozambique is using uh, private military contractors, and there are others as well. South African companies provided counterterrorism support to Nigeria. As Doug just mentioned, the issue is is that a lot of cases these governments don't want oversight and accountability. Despite their international obligation. Despite their international obligation, despite the fact that uh, even though you may not believe that the definition of mercenary international law is good, even if you believe that the various conventions that are out there, anti-mercenary conventions, are valid, uh, the, pro- the basic line here is that we have companies out there that are conducting operations, combat operations, and are not following, not only are they not following the laws and customs of war as defined in various treaties, such as Hague and Geneva Conventions, but there are also no accountability over them. In, in some cases, like the Wagner cases, you can't even trace, or it's very difficult anyway, to trace accountability for who's paying for them. I would make the, the point that, that, commercial, that, that companies that want commercial work, that, that intend to work or would like to work for extractive companies and so on, aren't going to do this. They are going to make sure that they operate transparently and accountability because they want to work with companies that don't want to hire rogues. Companies want professional, I mean, extractive companies want professional security companies working for them. Well, and this it, is a, a, a security company impacts on your reputation, so you want professionals doing this. So, so you're this not is going real, to see. Yeah. So, this uh, is a real advantage of the International Code of Conduct and the association is that even though it's not an accountability, it's a way to distinguish between legitimate companies and these other companies. 100%. And so for that reason, it's very, very important, if not an accountability tool per se, as, uh, as a means to be able to say that these other organizations, these Wagner-type organizations, are inconsistent with the desire to follow and implement the rule of law. We've done a lot in the last 13 years. We still need to close the gap with regards to a Civilian Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act. We need to encourage other countries to develop accountability mechanisms, laws, that, and means to try people for violating human rights, local laws, international laws, in the provision of security services. And finally, we need to do something to address the rise of these quasi-mercenary organizations across the world. Doug, any closing thoughts? Uh, I think that wraps it up. I think we have an industry, though, that uh, it's always been interesting to me. We have an industry that's that's happy to push along uh, the right rules and regulations that that I think everybody, uh, humanitarian organizations, the government, uh, and average people that that work beside private security companies every day, that they want to see these companies following. And uh, and so the industry is supportive on this. And I think uh, uh, for any country that's creating its own rules and laws and regulations, bring the industry in and let them help design these things. Uh, you'll get a better product out of it. Doug, uh, mercenaries have been with us from the very beginning. Uh, they're still with us now. They change, and even the definition of mercenary changes. But the important thing throughout the ancient art of modern war is that we need to be able to assure that whenever force is used in support of national policy, that it's done in a manner that is consistent with the traditional laws and customs of war. So... Thank you, Doug. Until next time, 
Thank you for listening to the Ancient Art of Modern.